Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Printed out. Was somebody has actually started listening to them all? Is that right, Fraser? From uh, from episode one to seventy four, I think. That's yeah, <laughs> seventy four. Well, we've done. Who more, is this person? We've done more than seventy four now. Haven't we? Do they need some sort of They'll counseling or help? They're not quite there yet. They'll be up to date next month. They're still catching up. Oh, really? So, yeah. how many have we done? We've done 80 or something. About 80, yeah. Right, okay. So, somebody's actually. We've got to stay ahead of this person. Yeah, yeah. we should do more. <laughs> yes. Yeah, let's keep going. Catch <laughs> up. The interesting thing about podcasts, particularly the word podcast, is actually, oddly enough, they sort of don't date. Because they're not particularly driven by one. You know, I listen to a load of football podcasts, and you can't go back and listen to old ones. Yeah. Because they're all dealing with what happened in football that week, or is about to happen. That, that rather Saturday. implies, though, David, that our, our um, top podcasts aren't as, you know, searingly topical and forensic in their level of investigation as I thought they were. They possibly They may not. just be just a soft old whiffle. <laughs> timeless, timeless whiffle <laughs> at that. Timeless whiffle. <laughs> We've been looking for a positioning statement for a while. <laughs> timeless whiffle, I think, could That'll be do. it. Yeah, it's not what they normally offer on uh, promised on these things is all the showbiz gossip and all that kind yeah, of stuff. You know, it's an enormous absence of any of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's all. this is the word podcast. I'm David Hepworth. You're I'm Mark Allen, and uh, the, working the faders and also contributing this week, Fraser Lurie. Fraser Lurie, and uh, if you notice any improvement or difference in the sound quality, we've reorganised the office, so we've got we've got access to a, a slightly smaller room, which no longer sounds like. A swimming bath in the middle of the M1. It has less wood. It has, okay, less glass, actually. Wood wood surely is a good thing. I think wood reflects. Oh, right, okay. So, uh, last week, or last time, a little bit later than usual, could have been uh, rather overtaken by events this week, so we're doing this on a Friday, but we'll get this to you as as soon as we possibly can. Um, Last week was a special St. Patrick's Day podcast uh, with special guest Barry McElhenney. And Andrew Harrison, who has no Irish, you know, uh, provenance as far as I know. Um, but they both uh, come from the People's Republic of Stoke Newington. And so they were talking about Stoke Newington quite a lot. Which is, uh, there's been a certain amount of feedback about it. Everybody seems to agree that N16, which is the postal code of Stoke Newington, if you wanted to, to put together 
a kind of pub rock band to play, uh, you know, at a, at a school garden party or something like that. There's your place to do it. Um, EMP points out that you can have Eddie Tempo on on uh, on vocals. Um, are these people meant to have some relationship? I'm afraid to say I haven't listened to this podcast. I've been too busy. But are they? Do they have some relationship with Stoke Newington? They live with there. A, oh, they live there. They live there. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fine. I've got you. <laughs> okay. Drums. Penny Rambo. Out of what? Crass. I think he probably no was something like that. Uh, yeah. Bass. Mark Bedford. Out of Madness. Uh, Leaders. Bedders, that's right. A lead guitar, Jinder Singh, out of uh, what? Corner Shop. Uh, and so, if you can put together a slightly better pickup group from your locality, I suppose this particularly works in London, you know, if you live in some suburb of London where you've noticed various members or former members of pop groups, you know, please please let us know. We'd be interested. We, we'd do, we do formed a word group in a taxi last night, didn't we? We did. We did on our yeah. way to a concert. Uh, playing the instruments we can all play. 70s Mike Johnson, the production editor, drums. Mark Allen bass, Fraser Lurie, guitar and vocal. Uh, Kate Mossman, keyboards. Exactly. I mean, that's, that ain't going to work. It's a good job I wasn't there, because yeah. I don't play anything at all. We were going to wonder what instrument you might contribute, though. Uke. A uke, uke. So this is just one chord. Yeah, yeah. We're going to record something and we're going to play a burst of it on the podcast. That's my plan. Further stuff about yeah. further stuff about Stoke Newington. Uh, somebody says you wouldn't be able to hear this band uh, for the chatter from people pushing three-wheeled prams and talking about schools and house prices and touching about the price of organic pack choy and the general braying from media types on Church Street. See, it's, That's it's, just Barry McElhenney. It's, mo- it's moved on since my days in M16, when I remember it for cockroaches. <laughs> Do you get cross about those huge, great three-wheeled prams? That's, that's the new thing, isn't it? It is. It, it's, it's come six, along three since you and pram children. Is just, that sums up a certain... It's a fill-in-the-gaps uh, conversation, isn't it? When you say three wheel ma- They're all made by Ferrari and Range Rover as well. Aren't yeah, they are. And I think what people are complaining about is the, just the sheer width of these, uh, yeah. these things... Uh, there's so much equipment. They're double-decker as well, aren't they? There's children slung on, on several different <laughs> layers. <laughs> I got on a tube train from Heathrow not long ago where somebody got on with one of these things, and honestly, it took up half the carriage. Yeah. You know, the, the, it was how the, the tube to walk. train just having to leave people on the platform because it, it's, it's absolutely stupid. So Just so some small child can be carried about like, you know, Dr. Johnson in a sedan <laughs> chair. <laughs> crying out. I'm, I'm going to get one. I'm going to get one in 10 or 15 years' time, actually. I'm being um, wheeled about. Following up last week, we also get uh, from uh, Gangle Sprocket, crap, but non-offensive Irish joke alert. Why do Irish people say everything twice? Do you know? Go on. To be sure, to be sure. I've never heard that one before. Is that a nature one? That's right. That's rather good. So we've been doing this podcast quite a while now, and one of the things we've regularly remarked upon is the fact that all groups, it would appear, eventually reform, unless there is some terrible personal animosity within the group that can never, you know, no oil can ever be poured on the troubled water. You know, we, we always cite examples like the jam, when hell will freeze over before the, you know, twice before the jam will yeah. get back together again. And we said the same thing about Spandau Ballet. Yeah. But lo and behold, this it's, week, Mark... It, well, it's, you know, it's so fantastic the amount of uh, exposure this has got in the media because it was on the 10 o'clock news, it was mentioned on the Today programme in that rather distant way that, <laughs> yes. that John Humphreys you know, extends the barge pole towards it. <laughs> oh, the way culture. he said Spandau Ballet was... Spandau, sp- probably, probably Spandau Ballet or something. <laughs> I don't know no, he said it right, but really as if he was... As 
he was holding a piece of paper in front of him, and he was looking through his, you know, his, yeah. his monocle yeah. to read it. You <laughs> That's know, right. He'd never come across the expression before. Yes. You can't do that anymore, actually. No, I quite admire him for it, actually. And he does it about the Beatles, too, still, doesn't he? <laughs> Paul McCartney wants to have a group called the Beatles, I believe. But uh, they were on Telecot News, Band of Valley. They were, on the, the, as I say, mentioned on the Today programme. There was a, a, a huge picture of them in The Guardian. The, uh, the Times did something. And I thought they all missed the obvious... Um, contextual twist that this they've chosen this group the group that seemed to sum up all the very worst um, self-satisfaction and arrogance and uh, and commercial hooey of the, of the 1980s you've chosen to come back in the week when the when the basher banker campaign was starting to take off oh, which as you know Sir Fred as, as uh, the, the, the roundly detested Sir Fred has uh, had to endure a couple of half bricks through his window and uh, and some sort of uh, vandalising of his house which is apparently um, activating loads of people who are very keen to get out and express their um, dissatisfaction with the economy and its, uh, its effect on them personally, I think, by, by bashing a banker. Uh, you know, the summit's happening next week and there's a piece on the Today programme even this morning advising bankers to, to dress, dress casually. On the way to work on whatever it is. I mean, they don't know. wear the bowler hats anymore. This is a brilliant... No, this is as simple as that. No, 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 they had an expert who was, in fact, was, no, who was the chief executive of a banking company who had told his, his, his workers if they were going to come to work to not wear a pinstripe seat. The idea that people still wear pinstripe well, can't actually Can I just interrupt it's like, it's it's like uh, I made a study of this. Because my old, our old friend, the major, yeah. you know, who used to work in the city, yeah. I used to go and, and, and have lunch with the major once a year in the city. And I used to, used to turn up occasionally in a suit that wasn't either blue or grey. And you, you'd surface at Liverpool Street, which really is a different planet. It's a different city, you know. And people look at you, strangely, because you're not wearing blue or grey. Yep. And I used to say to the Major, why don't you wear anything di- other than blue and grey? He said, nobody would deal with me yeah. if I didn't wear They think you're a chancellor or, or a charlatan. That's so true. But I love the idea that the, the way this guy was talking about bankers, the way that, you know, that sort of stereotype that probably comes from something like Mary Poppins. You remember the David Tomlinson character from Mary Poppins? Yes, and yes. But, uh, I think it's a dance routine at one point yeah. where they're also <laughs> swinging around lampposts with their bowler hats and, and rolled umbrellas. You know. But anyway, this guy said, Wall to all bankers, come to work in casual clothes. Because which means that when the anarchists surged down towards Threadneedle Street, you know, armed with crude Molotov cocktails. All dressed by Gap. All dressed by Gap, exactly. With their, with their, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, they'll, um, they'll, they'll be looking for people really in, 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 in trainers and... Oh, chinos. Uh, uh, chinos, chinos and pro- probably hoodies. With <laughs> they're going to pull over and knotted, you know, put over their shoulders and the, the sleeves knotted round their neck. Yeah, that, that's the yeah kind of, that'll be, that'll be like the mark MP, of a banker. It's like MP interviewed at the weekend, isn't it? It always yeah. amuses me. It looks like they've stepped off a yacht. Yes, <laughs> they do. <laughs> Pringle sweater. <laughs> Pringle sweater casually draped across the shoulders. <laughs> and usually, usually trainers to give the impression that they've been out and about taking exercise. So you think the spans are going to come in for a, a little bit of this collateral damage? Fingers over. crossed. Oh, <laughs> Anyone dressed like a member of Spandau Ballet, I think, probably deserves to be well, strung up from a lamppost. They're make, making great uh, play of the facts, aren't they? They don't dress like that anymore, aren't they? At the press conferences, we won't, won't be wearing kilts or frilly shirts or anything like that. They're just, they're kind of wearing, you know, suits and open-neck shirts, aren't they? Clothes like, befitting their age, probably. I'll tell you the other thing... Massively they... disappointing, because that's, that's the big attraction for me. <laughs> Seeing old Squeezy Norman, you know, still S- in that... Spiny. Company. Spiny, but he's known as Squeezy, wasn't he, for some reason? I don't know why. Spiny. spiny and Squeezy. See, where has he been for the last ten years? Yeah, unrecognisable as well. And I'll tell you the other thing that struck me, that they, 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 bore, they bore the mark of having done what all groups do nowadays before a press conference or make an announcement of anything is to go and lie under a sunbed for about a month. Yes, they're the bright orange, almost radioactive. <laughs> 
Hey, Mr. Tangerine Man. We've done this before, have <laughs> we? Yeah. So you you won't be you won't be rushing along to to. No, although I'm, I'm a great admirer of Gary Kemp's, actually, I have to say. Gary Kemp. Paul DeNoyer has, has interviewed Gary Kemp. Uh, I think I mentioned this to you the other day for his book he's written about London. Word writer Paul DeNoyer, which comes out very soon. And Gary Kemp is, uh, takes up a very very crucial and substantial area of this book and his theories about music in London. So there we are. Because Gary Kemp is the guy who ended up after Spandau Ballet with quite a bit of money, didn't he? Yeah, that was what all the debate was about, which is now now um, a, a personal matter. They gave a press conference the other day. Yes. People were going, well, we you know, thought you guys hated each other over the fact that... Didn't, didn't the other three members, the back legs of the pantomime horse to of Spandau fair, Ballet... To the back legs. Uh, this is the voice. A, vo- a voice, yeah, the voice. Right, Foggers, the voice. you know, Foggers, come on. Foghorn Handley. And I speak as the man who first yeah. described it as Foghorn Handley. Yeah. yeah. I like to feel I did my part yeah. for the, the kind of lexicon of popular music, you know. And Andrew Harrison invented Britpop. I invented. You called it Foghorn Hadley. I was the first person yeah, on the right. radio. Foghorn Hadley. Very good. Well, so you know, he sued uh, Gary Kemp twice, didn't he, with the other two, and lost. And the appalling um, indignity of having to go out, had to change their name from Spandau Ballet to X of Spandau Ballet. Yeah, no, no. That's not very good, is it? No, it isn't. That's so the posters would say Squeezy Norman playing the Foghorn Hadley, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, X of, and they're huge words, Spandau Ballet. <laughs> so it doesn't really make a vast amount of difference. For I think they'll probably do very well, but I think yeah. they may have just missed the boat by about two years. Because normally they always say, with, re- with bands reforming, you should wait until your original fans are old enough to afford a babysitter. You know, that's when they go out again. Because they were around well before Take That, and Take That have beaten them to the Reformation. Absolutely. You know, if, if Take That... In which yeah, case, yeah. they're way too late, aren't they? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, they're yeah. probably, you know. They span out ballet fans have got, you know, teenage kids or something Maybe like that. Maybe it's a grandchildren thing. Oh, well, you never know. You never know. Uh, so I don't know if Tony Hadley got a mention on a, on a, a thread that's been running on the web website, webmagazine.co.uk, and I, I, about who really, really, really can't sing. Um, oh, God. Now, I have to make an apology yeah. about oh, this. Oh, go on. Because I'm now so old and absent-minded that uh, this thread was originally started by uh, by Azim, and it got loads and loads of response. And I didn't contribute to it. I saw it was there. I just didn't, for one reason or another, didn't contribute to it. And then about three days later, I was sitting at home listening to... Uh, Keith Richards popped up on my iTunes doing one of his allegedly vocals. And, and I thought, people who really can't sing, that'll be a good thread. So I just started a damn thread. (laughs) Not realising, well, having forgotten that Azim had done the same thing three days earlier. So I I do apologise. You know, I'm I'm old. Who came up with this? Who came up with this? Because I can tell you straight off the top that there are two people who absolutely cannot sing. Go on. And I can prove this scientifically. Well, he's one of them. I wasn't thinking of him actually. I can prove this scientifically. Go on. Because they both sing a quarter tone sharp. And it, it obviously made records in the days before. This could be electronically corrected by all the machinery. Um, the, the BME Museum in, in the O2, I was down there the other day, and they have a, a, a vocal booth, and you can sing into it. And it, it links your voice in octave with yourself, so you're singing in octave. You sound like a squeeze record. And I can't sing terribly well, but it made me sound absolutely fantastic. It just said my, my voice sound absolutely beautiful. And I thought, well, that just gives you some other idea of what you can do. What technology is available yeah, to, to a proper Even record. a kind of non-singer can go in there and sound just fantastic. Did you, sound, two, did you still sound like you, or did you sound like someone else? No, I didn't really sound like me. That's why it sounded so good, Fraser. I mean, I was absolutely astonished. I, 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 I could have sat there all evening singing to myself. Yeah. 
but in the days before this technology was available, and uh, Davy Graham, person one, and Pete Wiley of Waheed, person two, went into the studios, this, this um, kind of assistance wasn't available. Davy Graham, Dave, is a quarter tone out. You I'm see, sorry. I, I'm just. I'm going to make that. I'm just, I, the poor old boy passed away not long ago. It's unkind to talk this way of of the deceased, but he can't sing. Great guitar player, obviously. Right. Pete Wiley made a record with Wahid in about I suppose about 1981 called "The Story of the Blues." Good record. I I, I I I put it to anybody listening that if you pull that up and listen to it now, you will notice it is at least a quarter tone out all the way through. It's a fact. But. We're not having a discussion, Dave. It's a statement. Okay, and you may be technically correct, <laughs> but I don't care oh, right, in okay. that case. Well, who are the people? What's your definition of not being able to sing? Keith Richards, it's just when he came up on my iTunes, I thought, dear God, he re- you know, he, it really makes you think about what singing is when you realise how completely Keith Richards misses it. You know, and it's the, you know, I think I quoted it in the blog that, you know, Peter Ustinov said that he used to like the idea of a man who aimed low and missed. Yeah, well, Keith Richards singing can, is a man who sets himself no great, you know, aspiration and then misses it. Yeah, you know, yeah. his be- standards are low and he falls, still falls short. It's kind of that's a very good point, actually, Fraser. You know, because I know nothing about singing. I can't sing. I'm dreadful, you know, and I have no musical pretensions whatsoever. And I think pop music has all kinds of different singers. You know, from people who clearly, technically, can, can sing brilliantly to people who sort of can't do it at all. But they are nonetheless singers because they've got a certain kind of courage of their own convictions. You know, there is, there is, I, I think it appears to me, as, and I, as I say, a complete non-musician, of all the musical disciplines, singing is by far the most demanding one because it requires a, Jeez, yeah. a display of vulnerability, you know, that, that, yeah. that nothing else requires. Yeah. You know, you've got to walk to that microphone or at the first rehearsal and, have and the confidence suddenly to make a confidence statement. to launch into yeah. a sound that is... Sort of you, but is not you. It's nearer to acting than it is to, no, to operating I, an instrument. I don't agree. And, I and the good singers do it. I th- and I, they, I, they, they make that jump. I, I disagree. I think it is uniquely you. It's not like playing a guitar, whereas a guitar has a, has a completely preordained tone that you can modify by hitting buttons. And you can make one guitarist sound like another guitarist just by using certain similar equipment. But a, a voice is absolutely unique. I don't agree with you. And also, I think your point about being out of tune is fair because, you know, if you look at the group like the Grateful Dead, who had four singers, and none of them, really, in all honesty, are great. They're, they're, they're just not very good singers, are they? Jerry Garcia. Oh, terrible. Pigpen McCurdy. I've got a joke here Calling. I'm going to find about this. While you right. keep talking about Phil it. Phil Lesh. And uh, remember the other one was? Uh, Bob Weir. Bob Weir's the singer. And Bob Weir is the one they put forward as the lead singer. Still has a very, very weak voice. And yet the combination of those four voices, sometimes together, is absolutely unique and absolutely extraordinary. And it's four people faltering, desperately trying to find a harmony. It's sort of missing. But There's it doesn't a, really matter. Somebody posted something on this thread started by Azim about Grateful Dead, and I marked it this morning. I can't find it. It says, the Grateful Dead, you know, what has 58 legs and no voice? <laughs> 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 the to be sure, to dead, be sure. <laughs> dead, definitely in there, you know. It's some really interesting stuff came up in this thread, actually. That uh, Peter Peter A. A. Pfeiffer said Graham Parsons can't sing. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, it's true. Technically, fair. technically it's can't fair. sing. Except yeah. somebody else later on made a really good point that Graham Parsons with Emmy Lou Harris is the most wonderful vocal noise you can ever hear. Makes you weep. Yeah, yeah because she really can sing, yeah. and he sort of can't. And the two together, that, yeah, that's probably why she's such a brilliant harmony singer. Mark Armand. 
can't sing. No, Malcolm. Yeah. Absolutely can't sing. No, but I, it kind of works. It sort of works. I hate to say that. I'm not... Oh, really? Yeah. You think that? Yeah, I absolutely cannot sing. Completely out of tune. Tone deaf. Horrific noise. This is from the Withenshaw Linesman, who divides, has two lists. He has great shite singers and shite shite singers. Oh, God, the guy I want to hear this. It's great. Yeah. So great shite singers, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, John Lydon, Morrissey, Sean Ryder... Ian Curtis, Tom Waits, Robert Wyatt, Susie, and Tricky. Right. Shite, shite sing. Morrissey can sing. The, re- the rest are just uh, have a character, don't they? Go on. Bob Dylan can sing. Separate yeah. discussion. Yeah, he can. Yeah. Really can sing. He's the best, actually. Well, yeah, okay. yeah, carry on. Shite, uh, shite stingers. Joe Strummer. I'd have to agree. Yeah, terrible. Can't thing. sing. Absolutely. Actually, he, why he hasn't got Mick Jones straight away after him, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, because should oh, I great, say, rock the Casbah. This will be an improvement. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Barney Summer, Ian yeah. Brown, yeah. Neil Tennant, Larue, and him out of block party. I don't know him out of block party, but it's a fair, fair comment. But again, Neil Tennant, immense character, immense character in his vocals. Well, I, 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 the, the one of the one of the things I, I um, that that gets me about this is I, I think there's all kinds of voices, but then there's voices you can live with and there's voices you can't live with. Somebody points out Rufus Wainwright, and they say, t- you know, I love his songs, but I can't bear to listen to his voice. Now, Rufus Wainwright has technically a fantastic voice, but I he, and I like Rufus Wainwright, but I can't take more than three tracks. That's that's the standard uh, phrase. Go on, sorry. Uh, Joanna Newsom. I love her voice, but I. Appreciate why people don't. She's oh, difficult. She's difficult. Oh, it's so rich, you know. The, the the terrible cliche, which I think I've written myself in Word, going to see um, Rufus Wainwright. Is it, it's like eating cheesecake or or, or, yeah. or, or sort of profiteroles. You literally, you, after three songs, you it's literally you can't deal with it. You can't process any more of it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, your appetite for this stuff is greater than mine. Some great observations here from Chris Evans. Presumably not that one. My personal aversion is to singers who seem to equate graveliness with authentic sincerity. It's a good one, this. This means I've never been able to take the likes of Bruce Springsteen, Rod Stewart, or their female counterparts seriously. I, I know what he means. There's a kind of heaviness. Bruce Springsteen can't sing anything light at all. No. Everything's, you know, full drama, or it's not there at all. Uh, and Fra- Fraser and I were sitting in the pub last night. And, I was about uh, to mention were you? Yeah. <laughs> And this is a singer-songwriter. This is Filthy McNasty's Whiskey Cafe in Amwell Street. And a singer-songwriter comes on, and uh, with a slightly heavy heart, actually. We're all trying to have a conversation. It's, it's, it's a bit loud. It's a little tiny room. But he was quite good. Wasn't it was the first song he did. And, right. uh, and then he says, um, <laughs> he says anyone here like Tom Waits? And we're thinking, well, gosh, what do you say? I mean, you don't want to encourage him, really. <laughs> so we kept our, our counsel. But anyway, he leaps into a Tom Waits song and then impersonated Tom he Waits. He did it in the neighbourhood, didn't he? Yeah, in the neighbourhood. In, in a Tom Waits voice. Growling in, in the, the neighbourhood. And it was just, it was heartbreaking. Do it in your own voice. <coughs> no. There's another one, actually, from Steve uh, Sheave Master here about, um, about Bobby Bland. This is a good one. He says... Um, he loves him, isn't it? Wonderful, soulful singer. He's not going to say he can't sing, can he? That's, no, that's he's not saying that. He says, but every now and then, and he does this your lord thing that sounds like the worst bout of phlegm clearance. Absolutely right. Since, since the Walloons last engaged in ethnic cleansing. <laughs> that is so true. The album he Dreamer, he does it on every single he does track. It every single yeah. track. Hiking away, lungful of flames. <laughs> obviously somebody just told him once that it was charming, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he felt he had to do it's it. It's got a throat clearing. Absolutely. Clear so true. Everything though. he did. 
Um, from, um, I can't read this, Boyo says, the, the rule of thumb about great singers is that you can't sing along with the buggers. Just try it with Al Green or Frank Sinatra. Can't be done. Yeah, that's think true. about that. Well, that, that, that surely strengthens the theory that Morrissey is a great singer because nobody ever, ever co- covers Smith's songs. Simply, it's impossible to cover them. Yes, that's because true. what the character of Smith's songs is the intonation and the meter that he sings in, and just the idiosyncrasies of his melodies. You know, yeah. and to to sing them, you you could only sound like the guy we were talking about in the pub last night. You could only have to impersonate Morrissey, and it would be awful, and it would be absolutely frightful. But Bob Dylan, I still hold, is is the greatest. Oh well, that's very encouraging that you should say that actually, because he certainly was. Uh, oh, okay. it's difficult to know whether it's yes, not live. No, I know, yeah. I know. God knows what they're doing with him in the studio nowadays. But, uh, but you know, I just think for for forty years that that ability to launch into absolutely anything and make it so fascinating and memorable just by dint of his vocal delivery is remarkable. That's why you know you still have his songs going through your head. Years later, but because of the way he sang them. And because at the time he sang them, I think, that way of singing, which obviously no one had ever heard before, was considered to be not only unorthodox, but kind of wrong and, and um, just so against the grain that, that the, it must have given him immense amounts of, um, what's the word, drive to prove his point. You feel that he's, he's it's, it's sort of evangelism about himself and the songs he's writing and the politics. It, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm you know, trying to make his mark and his identity in a world where singers were people who were taken away and trained and finessed by producers. And I suppose it also relates to that point I was, I was making about, you know, that first time that they sing, you know, that expression of this is me mm. musically. In his case, must have taken unbelievable nerve you know, at the age of 15 or whatever, yeah. he first said, you know, in front of his classmates, I'm going to play you a song. And did it in that, in that sound, which even when you listen to those first records, is so kind of fully realised, isn't but, it? Uh, but but um, it, it is, but obviously before that, when he was a rock and roll uh, performer, his great hero was Little Richard. And so, in fact, he was in rock and roll bands when he was at school and wasn't particularly interested in folk and roots music. And so his voice then would have been completely different. I love the idea that people just suddenly find their voice. There's a great bit in this Neil Young documentary on, on BBC4 recently where Neil Young finds not only his voice and his guitar sound in one particular night with the group in wherever they were, Bob Parker, I can't remember now. They're in some basement Toronto, studio, Toronto, you know. And all night they're wailing with their guitars and some malfunctioning and their equipment's terrible and he somehow hits this high wailing note with his, with his voice, which is not characteristic of the way he sings. And they play it back the next morning and everybody in the band says, Neil, th- do that's that That's it, that's that, you. That's you. That's what you're going to be. <laughs> which <laughs> is really it's extraordinary. Like being an actor, isn't I it? I know, because you, know, you just imagine, presumably, you know, people just arrive out of the box fully formed and that Neil Young at the age of eight was still sort of, you know, wailing away about something. So going back to the thing that you, you, you tried, uh, you know, putting your voice through a, some kind of yeah, treatment, yeah. Um, you know, is there a case for saying that one of the reasons that it seems to me that, you know, 90% of contemporary female pop singers all sound the same is that they're going through these kind of treatments? Absolutely positive they are. Uh, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, there are, obviously, there are devices that can... That, that was just, I mean, I can sing in tune, but what it did was just turn my voice into an interesting tone. But there are devices, as you know, that can iron out um, the actual you know, note by note of your, of your delivery. I remember, I remember Neil Tennant once telling me that he'd recorded a Dusty Springfield song 
uh, what was it called? Um, God, it was the big hit. That what have I done? What have I done? And he thought that Dusty Springfield was going to be able to just deliver this in one magnificent vocal. But the way she recorded was to, was to record in um, blocks of four to eight bars at a time. She would just give it her all. And then they'd go back and they'd, they'd get those four bars and then they'd do Put the next, next four the, bars. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that's how she had developed her style based on what the technology had allowed you to do. Because clearly when she started, it wasn't like that. No, no, no. You know, it just wasn't. People like Scylla Black had to go in with a kind of, you know, 60-piece orchestra and do, do it, it in one take. Yes. Yeah. And then they're gone in three hours. And they're gone. These guys are yes. costing money. You can't get it wrong. You're yeah. just a little 17-year-old girl in a booth, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So, Fraser, you, you sing from time to time, don't I you? I sing badly, yeah. <laughs> What's the name of your group, Fraser? <laughs> Bobby Gillespie's Hair. <laughs> So we've been, tell us about we, tell we, us about BGH. We've been together for longer than the Beatles. <laughs> right. Um, I think we've done twenty years now. We've played in three different decades. Um, we headlined a festival over Sonic Youth once. We play at weddings. You, you headlined over Sonic Youth. Yeah. Was that? <laughs> <It's> like <coughs> it, it was. We turned up at a festival. It was at Canberra Sands, a Butlins camp in Canberra Sands. That Sonic Youth were headlining, and uh, we turned up to play, and had forgotten to allocate us a time. So they said, "Will you go on after the headliners then?" And we did. We played with Sonic Youth gear. <laughs> we, so we, great. we started off. Follow that. We yeah. started off with um, uh, a medley of Karma Police and Into Karma Chameleon. You can play Karma Police. Badly, badly. badly. Oh, that's fine. That's, good we, we that's impossible. We don't play. rehearse. We, oh, okay. We, we just get up and we try badly. And because we're trying, <coughs> we're not trying to be funny, we're trying to be good and falling dismally short, and therefore it kind of works. So, Fraser... Keith so, Richards uh, would love you. There, there is on YouTube, I think. I've seen that. You, you sent me a link one. It's it? been taken down, unfortunately. <laughs> you took it down. Was it a PRS? Yeah, the PRS <laughs> took it down. The Copyright violation, I believe. <laughs> Because you were performing when I saw you, uh, and you were accessing the lyrics from a, an exercise book, weren't you? Yes, yeah. As I say, we don't rehearse. Right. <laughs> so, so you don't, don't memorise the I lyrics the or anything? was me doing um, Feel Like Making Love. By, uh, <laughs> but a bad, bad company. company. Yeah, with, from, with reading out the, the lyrics from exercise. So you were yeah, reading yeah. them out? Yeah. You're treading after Paul Rogers. It, to be honest, it's a bit of a prop. It's like if I get a bit nervous. I what other? Remind me what the lyrics are. I remember the chorus. I feel like making love. Oh my god, that's ridiculous! And do the audience like this? They enjoy it. I think if you know me or know the band, it's fun. I think if you don't, have you ever played? I was going to say, have you ever played to people who don't know you? Uh, yeah, at this festival. I, took, I remember taking a photograph from the stage, and I got this fantastic picture of the front two or three rows applauding. And then the rest of the room is a, a, a sea of single fingers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely idea. <laughs> but you're not, All not you. put off by this at all. No, no, because, it, because we're not doing our own uh, material and because it's almost meant to be bad, there's nothing to, nothing to go See, wrong I, really. I, The worse I, it is, the better it is. How do you, but when you come on after Sonic Youth, I mean, do you, how quickly do people realise that you're meant to be bad? Or do they just think, quite rightly, that, you know, they pay money, this is the entertainment, that you're, you're meant they, to be good? They realise pretty quickly, I think, because we are so bad. You see, I, this is really interesting, because I've, you know, observed millions of groups, and my only experience of performing is not musical, it's theatre and things like that. And when you're in a play and it's going badly, you know it's going badly. You really can tell. 
And people, actors, are really cut up about it. They hate it, you know. Musicians have this fantastic ability, it seems to me, looking at them from the other side of the footlights or whatever, to be completely impervious to how badly they're going now. But isn't that to do with collective responsibility? If you're in a play, uh, I would imagine that the moment you're speaking, you feel that you, on your own, are carrying this entire vehicle. And if it isn't working, it's because you, David Hepworth, are not, um, you know, feeling the mood, whatever right. it is, you know. Uh, whereas if you're in a band, you know, you can be trogging away and, and, and kind of blame it on the lead guitarist or the singer or the drummer. I don't know. I mean, you're just making a great wall of noise. That you're... Sometimes it can sound awful out front and on stage it sounds perfectly fine. You know, you've got a different mix on stage and it's, it sounds reasonable. You sound like you're rocking. And in fact, you're not because it sounds awful out front. But, but I, a vast I number of musicians don't like to think about it too much. No. They don't like to entertain the possibility that it might be going badly. They prefer to put that to the back of their mind. Yes. Now, this could be a, an entirely understandable means of getting through it, you know what I mean? Or it could be just the musician's mindset. I think for the mindset of most amateur musicians, is it's generally accepted that it's more fun for the people performing than the people listening. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's why they're doing it. And there's a lot of very long-suffering uh, boyfriends, wives, girlfriends, where they're going, they're, they're enjoying themselves, they're happy, you know, and applauding politely at the end of each song. I was telling Fraser, I've got, I've got an old, old colleague of mine who who's, uh, still plays in bands, you know, and, uh, and every three weeks he sends me an email, as he obviously sends it to loads and loads of people he used to work with or whatever, saying, you know, we're playing the Bulling Gate or whatever, you know, on Thursday, Blues Evening or whatever. He sends this. He is the only person, the only person out of the many people I correspond with or, 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 or find myself spammed by who uses that red exclamation mark to indicate that this is a really important... Oh, well, urgent! That's really just, important. Yeah. And, and I look at this exclamation mark every time it comes, and I think, nothing illustrates better the contrast between the urgency that he gives to it and the urgency that anybody receiving it yeah. gives to it. It's all, you know what I mean? Are you sure he's not being ironic? No, he's not at all. Not at all. Because all that matters to the gig musicians is, can I get ten warm bodies... Yeah. in there, spending money at the bar in order to the get bar, the gig again in three weeks' time. But there's no greater mark of low priority than a high priority. Oh, OK. OK, OK. Could be. Could be. Mark, you got a book you wanted to tell us about. Oh, well, I did. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, well, I've just been reading this. I, I, you know, I feel a bit bad about this because Keith Drummond, our old art uh, yeah. director on, on Word magazine for, for three or four years, a fabulous bloke, used to go on and on oh, and on don't on say that. About what? Don't say he was fabulous. Oh, sorry. He'll be... You know, <laughs> He'll be, be listening. He'll be listening. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, no, not fabulous. He used to go on and on and on about the auteurs. And I missed out on the auteurs completely. Did you ever... You, I've just been with the auteurs. I remember going to see them at Glastonbury thinking they were very, very good. This was about 1993 or whenever they were at the, probably at the top of their game. And there's, Luke Haynes, the singer of the auteurs, has put out this book which is now out in paperback, called Bad Vibes, Britpop and My Part in Its Downfall. Um, it is, I just think it's absolutely fantastic. You know that John Niven? You so had it's John a personal Niven. memoir. Yeah, we well, yeah. had John Niven on the, yeah, on, yeah. The, on, the, on the podcast. He wrote that fantastic book about the music industry in 1997. Kill Your Friends. Kill Your Friends. And it's got the same kind of feel to it, um, in that it's, um, it, it, it's, it's incredibly aggressive. Um, it, it, he seems to hate absolutely everybody. Have you read this? Any of this no, book? I haven't. It's really fantastic. He hates the promoters. He hates his fellow band members. He hates um, competing the record musicians. company. He, he loathes <laughs> and detests his rivals, who are of course Suede, Blur, Supergrass, Oasis. You know all these guys. It is just so fantastic. 
and is I thought it was just extraordinary how much you learned about the music industry because not only is his analysis of Britpop itself fascinating, I mean he makes really obvious points. The fact that it was called Britpop was one of the main reasons why it could not be exported. America would not. I never struck me that Ameri- really America would not buy Britpop no. in the same way. As if you think about it, it was some, something called I don't know French states so French pop. Actually, we would. Do you think we would? I don't think if we thought it was an American movement proudly flying an American flag, I think we'd be terribly resistant somehow. That was something that uh, you know summed up the personality of another continent that we were expected to to support. And, and uh, well, you can't join in, can you? No, you can't. But anyway, there's, there's a brilliant bit where he goes. Um, they're making their third album. Um, my second masterpiece, as he calls it. And he's talking about being put... It tells you so much about the lack of control, actually, that musicians have over their own work. You always imagine that you make your third album and you've, you've decided where you're going to record it. You've decided who the producer is, whatever. But no, the record company put him in Abbey Road Studios, which he doesn't want to be in, with a guy called Steve Albini, who's just, who is so hot right now, uh, who's right. just made, who's just made the yes. Nirvana records, yeah. right? And this is meant to be the absolutely classic marriage that's going to you know, redu- produce the absolute yeah, masterpiece. Yeah. It's so funny. And so uh, they're stuck in Abbey Road, and there's a lovely bit where he says, um, let me just lay waste to the notion that a big expensive studio, hours and hours of recording time, and a big shot record producer add up to making a great album. There is not a single case in the history of recording that backs up this theory. Yep. Which is a really good point. Yep. So he's gone in there. He is just so arrogant, this guy, in a very attractive way. He's, he's so arrogant to the point that when he puts out... Albini. No, sorry, sorry, not Albini. This is Luke Haynes. All right. When Luke Haynes puts out... He, he has two settings, basically. One is, I've created a masterpiece, but the general public are too thick and clueless to be able to understand what I'm doing and they haven't bought my record. Or, I have knocked out three or four massively substandard pieces of utter shit and uh, the, the record companies and the press have hailed this as the work of an unparalleled genius you know and elevated me to some pedestal but anyway Albina's lovely girl Albini comes in and they get a schoolmaster lecture on the first day and you're trying to imagine how do these producers work with these bands and he's a bit like a schoolmaster you know and he comes in and he says uh, Albini says make sure you have new drum heads for the snare and, replace- and replacement strings fresh batteries for effects pedals and spare valves for the amplifiers ensure that all leads are in good working order and you have enough plectrums. On and on it goes. I'm half expecting to be told to bring a change of clothing to the studio. We will start at midday, this is Albini again, and finish at 10 o'clock in the evening. If a song is not working, you can take a day off and write a couple of better ones. What the fuck is this guy going on about? Write a couple of better songs. Who, who does this septic think he's talking to? This meeting has been terribly unpromising, etc., etc. And it's so fantastic, because what actually happens is they go in and they make this record in 13 days, because Steve Albini is only booked for 13 days. And the record actually turns out to be their third album is a bit of a masterpiece, and everybody loves it. And at the very end of it, the record company guy comes in and pays Albini in cash. They have a playback. It's, it's just so, it's so fascinating, because you've got no idea how these things really work. They have a playback, and in order to ensure that Albini will get his cash at the end of the 13 days... They've got to play the record to the assembled record company personnel, and it's got to be approved with all the band there. Can you imagine the tension? And the guy has brought a brick of cash in dollars to go, how much money would this, the producer of Nirvana be getting? You can't imagine. And at the end of it, they all have to agree it's a great record and can give him in a large brown manila envelope the cash, which is massively humiliating, obviously, for the record company that he wants to be paid in cash in the first place. And also, place. presumably, he didn't want points, did he? Because he didn't think he, he was going to sell. He doesn't want points. He's not interested. No, Absolutely. 
could have done well. But it's just so, so, so that, extraordinary. There's cool. another brilliant moment where Paul McCartney comes into the studio because they're in Abbey Road and Paul oh. McCartney's working in Abbey Road. And Luke Haynes, in his monstrous arrogance, which, as I say, is both repulsive and enormously attractive, has built up this resistance to McCartney that is just, it is just, it's just absolutely extraordinary. And McCartney comes in at one point and says, uh, can I listen to these songs? And he doesn't want to play them to McCartney because they're too good for they're McCartney. Good. So you can imagine the clash of these egos. A guy who thinks that his songs are so much better than McCartney's being produced by, you know, the guy who made Nirvana, who's just simply telling them to, you know, when they can eat lunch and, you know, when they should, how they should tune their guitars and, and uh, you know. But is the, tr- is the truth that underneath all this, he's not that arrogant at all. It's just, it's completely a facade because, you know, that, that, it's what musicians have to do oh, completely. in order to get up and perform. Completely, because, you know, the auteur story wound up, I mean, quite a while ago. So for, for a few years, that guy has been licking his wounds, yep. uh, much as I'm fond of him for reading this book, and watching all the other groups that he so roundly, publicly detests oh. going out and playing football stadiums. <laughs> Blur are not doing badly, though. Oh, no. In fact, they just reformed. Oasis, oh, I think they're probably paying the rent. Yeah. Yep. Even, even Swede have, have, uh, have all got a little house in the country somewhere i'm quite sure yeah so that's so bad vibes it's just fascinating and by luke hayes yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's in your local bookshop now it's really good i think we should interview with the magazine so fraser uh, are you organizing your holidays fraser's organizing another trip mark i've got a couple of things lined up i've got a someone's got a couple uh, i've got a easter break to europe i'm going to go and see benfica play on a saturday and real madrid on a sunday Sick. two countries in two days perfect and then oh. uh, September, I'm back to North Korea for the third time. <laughs> so, lists, Fraser. What, what brings you back to North Korea <laughs> so regularly? <laughs> Remind me, is it the food? It's not the food, no. The beaches? It's, it's, it's like going to another planet. It's the closest you can get to leaving this one without actually having to do so. So, what are your what top kind of three planet trips, Fraser? It's a very odd planet. It's kind of, uh, it's from the 1950s. It's probably built by George Orwell in some way. Oh, right, a okay. Very, very odd place. Very yeah. odd. I've been on the news in North Korea. Doing what? I arrived. The first time I'd been there, I arrived and was filmed getting off the plane. What tourists arrived? And then in the evening, we were on the news as being as visiting delegates coming to pay tribute to the great leader. <laughs> Lead singer of Bobby Gillespie's Hair, <laughs> spotted in Central Park. <laughs> Concert <Yeah>. expected. <laughs> so Fraser, of all the places you visited on your your extraordinary, unique holidays, what are, what are your top three that you've done? Um, Ashgabat, which is the capital of Turkmenistan, which is a very, very odd place. It's a, kind of, every building looks like a spaceship. Right. And uh, salt and petrol are free. It's very odd. So salt and petrol? Are free, yeah. Salt and petrol. I'd put salt and petrol in everything. Yeah. <laughs> they crisp. Perfect condiments. Obviously Pyongyang. Right. And top three, I don't know. Uh, Damascus, I really like. Cause it was <laughs> like going back to the Bible. It was like being in the Bible. You went to Chernobyl last year? I went to Chernobyl last year. That was terrific, yeah. Is there, there's a town next door. Surely you've got the place yourself still, haven't you? I mean, Chernobyl, are they? It's uh, not busy. <laughs> but, uh, there's a town next door called Pripyat, which is... Uh, Where all the people have two heads. They, they evacuated <laughs> it in, in, in an hour, and no one, no one has ever been back. So it's like walking around... In uh, so you went back? You were the first yeah. person... Again, no, no, probably no, no, no. filmed? No, 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 I wasn't the first. I do regular trips there. Now. Lunatic British rocker. <laughs> re-enters nuclear zone well if you've got any suggestions for where Fraser might like to go next you know please uh, let us know oh absolutely the odder the better the odder can I, I just say one other thing about Fraser which has always impressed me that Fraser wrote a wonderful thing was it on the Observer and Guardian's website I can't remember now Observer. about your A to Z the Observer Guardian website about the it's probably still there about the A to Z of food yeah explain how your A to Z worked I ate my way through the animal alphabet 
but but it was a quite a, a, a an unorthodox collection of animals, wasn't it? It was. I mean, what are the, I a was for what I can't remember. Just give us a few. Ants was A. A for ants. Uh, for I Z- like ants, but Z- couldn't Z- eat a whole one. Z was a, <laughs> a, a zebra Wellington. Right, zebra Wellington. Yeah. There was there was kudu in there, which is a kind of antelope. So you found though. Where, where do you, you buy a, you a bit of slice of kudu? Oh, off the internet, you can buy anything off the internet these days, Mark. This sounds like a sort of illegal bushmeat market you're entering the, the, into. So the, uh, if you want a piece of kudu, you just, just, you just, what, do you go to eBay or something? How do you see no, what the, the prices there's are? There's a couple of exotic meat butchers, as they call them, who operate online. One in Bristol. I don't think they have any connection to the zoo, but I might be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. Animals in cages di- disappearing. But even, even at the moment, I have I have python in the freezer. I have some. in the freezer. You always keep a bit of python. I've got some camel. Gets to impress girls. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some camel in there. A couple of lovely camel steaks. You've got a bit of camel in your freezer. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. What will be the occasion when you when you when you bring out the old camel? When right? I've run out of everything else. All right. The camel's not very nice. <laughs> it's quite tough. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.